But Owen is in this stage that is just hilarious, all right? It is this, uh, the throes of the superhero stage, which I think he's been in for about three years. And uh, last time they visited, uh, he went everywhere in this Spider-Man costume that he got for Christmas. And, and like, everywhere we went, he was wearing it full mask and, and all, you know? And uh, we were walking down Franklin Street and um, got ready to turn a corner, and he almost runs smack into, judging by the height difference, basically the ankle of Tyler Zeller, which is <laughs> really funny to see, right? Like tiny Spider-Man, Tyler Zeller, beautiful. And go heels, by the way. Okay, it's a good day. And you're all in church now because you're like, Lord, please hear my prayers today. I'm putting in my time. Let's make this work. Okay. Uh, and it works like that. Um, just kidding. <laughs> so, um, totally in this superhero phase, and, and it, it's hilarious. And so, he goes through Spider-Man, and he, he's been into Batman, and of course, into Star Wars, and they're not superheroes, but they're in, incredibly cool. And, uh, I said it, and... And now he is in this incredible Hulk phase, okay, which is a fun phase because you, like, get to rip your clothes off and be like, ah, right, okay? And so <laughs> he does this, and, and he totally will flip into Hulk voice and, and say things in this really hilarious Hulk voice like, I'm the Hulk, okay? And, uh, but, but the brilliant thing about this kid is he doesn't just stop with, like, playtime. He lets this bleed over into every aspect of his life. So they're, they're going out to dinner and he continually like just plays along with this thing. And so they go into to this place to get pizza and, and he loves pizza. But the Hulk apparently had never had pizza before. And so he goes in and he's like, what is pizza? Hulk don't know pizza. You know? And they're like, Oh, pizza's great, Hulk. You're going to love it, you know? And, wow. Okay, that's not good. And <laughs> not good. I will pick that up in a second. And um, and then, so he goes into, you know, the Hulk don't know pizza, but Hulk try ice cream. All right? <laughs> Hilarious. And then he moves it beyond just kind of the fun stuff to where now he's actually letting this get so deep that he is wrestling with the existential angst that comes along with being gifted with superpowers. So at night, they're putting him to bed, and he says to his mom, why Hulk not like the other kids? (laughs) And they're like, because, buddy, you're special. And he says, Hulk just want to be normal. <laughs> awesome. Hilarious. I love this kid. And that is the question that we will be wrestling with this morning. <laughs> just kidding. No. No. <laughs> but, but it kind of does give us this insight into, like, from the moment we're, like, as young as we are, like, questions. All of these questions. And sometimes you're like, where in the world did that question come from? How did you think of that as a four-year-old, right? But, but from the earliest moments of our lives, like as soon as we can kind of articulate things and, and, and as our mind begins to form like that, we begin to ask questions. And there's this curiosity about us that's built into us. And God loves it. God delights in it. 
Because as we said, he is absolutely the answer. We, we don't doubt that in any bit. We affirm that, that he is the answer. But we also affirm that he delights in our questions. Because our questions hint at the fact that we have a hunger to know more and to know him more. And even times when those questions come in the form of doubt, when those questions seem like they are doubt, even at the root of that doubt, there is this proclamation to him that we say, I don't understand this, but I think you can handle it. And I think you can answer it. So God is not afraid of our questions. He delights in them and he wired us with this curiosity and he delights in our hunger to know more. And the beautiful thing about it is he answers that hunger. And the more we follow it and the more we follow these questions, what we tend to find is not that we come to the end of it. But one question leads us into a whole new room that we weren't even expecting that has just unlimited options of doors in it as well. And so as we find answers, more questions are sparked. And that doesn't mean that we, that we are riddled with doubt our entire lives. No, it means that we are riddled with wonder when we come into contact, when we engage with the Spirit of God because he opens us up and he, and he feeds this curiosity that he wired us with. And so that's why over this series we are wrestling with some of the hardest questions. And we are, we're going through Scripture and we're looking at what questions are sparked by the passages that we read. And so today we're actually going to uh, talk about a, a few questions that even this week um, had some great conversations with a couple different people about. And these questions came to the forefront. And, and as I was emailing and talking to different people, it's like, man, this is ridiculous how this is fitting together with where we are headed. And we want to make this proclamation as a church. We are not afraid of the questions. We aren't because God isn't afraid of them. We don't claim that we have every answer. We will do our best to dig. And, and that's what I love about this town is it fosters like more creativity and more curiosity and it forces us to dig deeper. And, and so we are not afraid of that and we welcome that. We'll do our best. We won't have every answer, but we believe that the answers are out there and we will journey together in a search to find them. Father, help us this morning as we get into your word, as we study this, as we dig deep and as we wrestle with some of these things that are difficult to handle. It's some answers that aren't just available right on the surface, but they, they send us searching. Help us this morning. Be found in our searching. And we believe that that's the end of it. We believe that, that every time we look, that as we continue to look, you will draw us deeper, that you will be found, that you are not hiding from us, but you are leading us deeper and deeper into the mystery of who you are. So we acknowledge that today, that there is mystery and wonder tied up in who you are. And so we won't always find every answer. It will take a lifetime and even beyond that to continue to discover exactly who you are. But help us today in your word as we look at it, as we study it, as we examine it. Lead us, teach us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning we are going to be looking at John chapter 2. And this is actually um, 
some uh, one of the most controversial uh, moments in the ministry of Jesus that we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, one of the most controversial moments in the ministry of Jesus. Give me a second here to... Uh... David, can you come help me with that, buddy? <laughs> if you would adjust that for me as we get rolling, I appreciate it. You are the man. All right. David Keller, everybody. Sweet. Yes. Awesome. You are the man. That's perfect. Thank you. Okay. Great. So John chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 13 through 22. Okay. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. It's often referred to by the biblical scholars as Jesus and the temple incident. All right, Jesus and the temple incident, which lets you know that it's kind of controversial. Like, we don't even really want to spell it out, okay? It's like, um, Carl was no longer allowed in that restaurant after the stir-fry incident, okay? Um, let's not even go into it. Um, so, that that's kind of sets it up with exactly what's going to happen here. It, it is a controversial moment in the ministry of Jesus. It says this, starting with verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. When the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So right here off the bat, we, we realize, yes, this is an incredibly controversial moment. Jesus kind of like seemingly flying off the handle, going through the temple, flipping tables, you know, just kind of going nuts with it and driving animals and people out of the temple, sending people running, diving under tables for cover. And, and so we understand the controversy of it. But another piece, another question that's raised immediately as we read this is the issue of the order in which this event occurs. Okay, it happens right here in John chapter 2, the very beginning of John's book. John is just getting started, and right here in chapter 2, he places this story about Jesus in the temple. Now, the controversy here is that the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also tell this same story. But they put it at the very end of Jesus's life, at the end of Jesus's ministry. And in fact, it's one of those catalytic moments that pushes towards Jesus's arrest and ultimate crucifixion. So why do the other three put it at the end? And here John puts it at the beginning. And immediately, as we read that, flares go up and we say, wait a second, there's some mistake. They can't both 
be right. They can't both be right. So who is right and who is wrong? And immediately the question comes up as we look at the order in which this happens. Are there mistakes in the Bible? Are there flaws in the Bible? Are there discrepancies? Are there inconsistencies? Now, here's what we got to understand, okay? As we wrestle with that question, if that question was raised as you read this story, then good, good. You are paying attention and you are engaged with the scripture and God has to love that and I absolutely love that. Good, if this raises questions for you. Let's take a step back and look at why this might be, okay? Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, Mark, Luke, and Matthew are three Gospels that are known as the synoptic Gospels, which can mean kind of a general summary, but in this sense, it it basically means with the same eye. That's what that word can mean there. With the same eye. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar Gospels. They follow very, very much of the same flow, a lot of the same content. Scholars believe that Mark was written first. It's the shortest of the Gospels. And then they believe that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a template and then built on it and told more stories that happened in the ministry of Jesus or developed out even further some of the things that happened in Mark and explained them further. In fact, in the book of Matthew, we find 97% of the book of Mark. 97% of the book of Mark shows up in Matthew's gospel. Okay, And, and when we look at Luke's gospel, Uh, almost 90%, it's like 88% of Mark shows up in Luke. Okay, so there's a lot of overlap here. And these, they follow a lot of the same flow. They cover a lot of the same material. The three are very similar to each other. John, however, is a completely different story. John takes a completely different approach. Whereas the other three often follow a very chronological order the life of Jesus, John doesn't intend on doing that, and he doesn't pretend to do that. Oftentimes, we do find it in John following a chronological order, but a lot of times, John intentionally groups stories together, not based on the order in which they happen, but based on common themes, okay? So he puts these stories together, and he tells one story, and he says, while we're on that subject, Jesus also did that. Oh, yes, speaking of this, Jesus also did this. And so he groups them together thematically and not only chronologically, okay? Take the next step back and look at where this lands in the book of John. From the beginning, John is setting up a lens through which we are to understand the entire rest of his book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 set up the lens for us to see through the rest of the book. Chapter 1 begins with these words. In the beginning. Have we heard that anywhere before? Where do you recognize that from? Genesis. Exactly. That's how the book of Genesis begins. He borrows that beginning. Was that a mistake or is he like copying? Is it kind of a plagiarism? No. Very intentional rhetorical move on the part of John. What is he saying? He's saying the life of Jesus is a brand new creation story. If Adam is kind of at the center of the first creation story, Jesus is the, is the new Adam, a new creation story. And what went wrong in the garden, Jesus is here to set right. Jesus is a new creation story. Chapter 2 deals with Jesus kind of being this new 
way, the completion of the old religious way, that Jesus has come to fulfill all of that and take it even further. So chapter 2 tells this story about the turning water into wine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that is not hilarious. Okay. Uh, <laughs> David, can you help me out, brother? You are the man. <laughs> I don't need all of those. Time to clean out my Bible. All right, cool. All right, here. I will, uh, let's abandon that, and I'll just hold these. All right, cool. Thanks, buddy. Sweet. (laughs) This is crazy. Okay, so where was I? Okay, John chapter 2 begins with the story about the turning water into wine. Wine is a symbol that Jesus uses to represent the new way that is coming, the new kingdom. So he tells this little kind of parable, this twist of a story where he says, you don't take new wine and put it in old wine skins. Because as the new wine kind of expands and grows, and, and then the old wine skins can't contain it. And the old wine skins burst. Okay? So he says that's what the new way is like. The old structures can't contain it anymore. There's a new way. And the old structures are breaking open because they can't even hold it back. And at the Last Supper, he holds up the cup and he says, This wine represents my blood, which is the new covenant that God is making with you. Wine represents this new way. And in that story where he turns water into wine, anybody remember what he tells the servants to put the water in? Six stone jars that are used in the temple for ceremonial and religious washing. These these jars that had been used for religious purposes are given a new use. The old religious apparatus is used for new things. A new way is coming. A new way is coming. So John starts it off that way. And then he talks about this story with the temple. And he says the old, the temple is a part of the old structure. And now Jesus has arrived as the new temple, as the new representation of the very living flesh and blood presence of God among us. And then chapter 3 talks about Nicodemus, where he meets with Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who is basically a guardian of the old way, an expert in the old way. And Jesus says to him those famous words, you must be born again. A new birth. So from the beginning, John has grouped these stories together on purpose to set up for us a lens of what is coming up, that Jesus is the new creation. He's come to set everything right. What went wrong in the garden is made right in Jesus. And Jesus is the new way. The old structures cannot hold him. And it is breaking open as he arrives on the scene, setting up a new way. Cool? All right. So that's kind of the first question that we wrestle with is that we've got to understand when we find things that seem like inconsistencies, then we need to look deep and we need to kind of understand what is going on in the mind of the writer, what kind of literary structures the the writer is intentionally using. And a lot of times as we look beyond the surface, as we look at those things, we can find those hidden meanings and the webs that are there that kind of give us an understanding into that. Cool. The next piece of the story 
um, we're going to look at is where Jesus actually um, represents this kind of, uh, well, not kind of, but flat out anger and this anger. And one of the questions that we wrestled with last week, and I had a discussion with someone actually about this this week, too. We put up on the screen kind of the funny like Google things where we were doing the funny Google searches. We started a question and Google finished it for us, right? And so we used that one of my pastor and then like the top five searches were my pastor hates me, <laughs> my pastor offended me, my pastor's a dictator and all this is like, wow, awesome. Um, and one of them that we put up there was the question of why does God? Why does God? And then the several things that filled it out. And the top three responses were, why does God allow suffering? Why does God hate me? And why does God let bad things happen? Um, I, I, I've, I followed the, the one of the why does God hate me? And several of the questions had to do with people who were dealing with these sicknesses and illnesses. And they felt like God struck them down with these things. And they can't catch a break in life. And they're like, why does God hate me? Why does God hate me? And and so we look at this image of Jesus tearing through the temple, flipping tables, chasing people out. And we say, Jesus is the representation of exactly what God is like. So God must be like that. He must be angry. He, He must be like enraged. And he's going through just kind of tearing things up. And wherever he finds bad things happening, he's striking us down and he's hating us and he's taking his anger out on us. But is that what is happening here? Is that what's happening? As we look through scripture, we do find that God indeed gets angry. God absolutely does get angry. God is without a doubt ultimate love. He is by his very nature love. But at times, that love sparks an anger in him. It is his immense love for us that causes him to be angry against certain things. And as we look through scripture, there are two things consistently that God says he is angry about. The first is corrupt worship practices. God hates idolatry. And when we, when we place something else at the center of of our lives when we give something else our best and our first and we turn our worship and our hearts towards something else this makes god angry why because he just selfishly wants all of our attention no because he knows what is absolutely best for us and without him at the center of it all our lives spin out of control okay and the second thing that god hates over and over again the thing that god gets angry about in scripture is the exploitation or the oppression of the weak and god cannot stand to see that happen and in this story those are the two things that are happening together as jesus enters the temple he sees people selling um animals for sacrifice okay and is god is jesus mad because they're selling animals no it was a necessity People needed to buy animals in order to participate in the worship there. They would buy an animal there and they would present it for sacrifice. The thing that made Jesus angry was there was a consistent practice in the temple that the people who were selling the animals realized they had the corner on the market. They realized people had to buy from them or else, you know, in their minds, they're 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 put out from God. 
And so they've got like the golden egg right here, right? So they can charge as much as they want. The laws of supply and demand had smiled favorably upon them. And they said, we will take full advantage of this system. And they took advantage of the system. And by doing that, they put an unfair burden on the weakest of people. You notice here, part of that was people who were selling doves. And Jesus says to the people selling doves, get out of here. You've turned my father's house into a market. If you were poor and you could not afford uh, uh, another type of livestock, a lamb or, or, or um, cattle for sacrifice, then you were allowed to sacrifice a dove, which would be much, much cheaper. And here people are running up the prices and turning worship into an enterprise and using it to place a burden on people. And that burned Jesus up. And he couldn't take it. And he turned over tables out of anger and hatred, out of anger against corrupt worship and placing unfair burden on people. Jesus gets extremely upset and angry when he sees injustice. That is the thing that God hates. He doesn't hate you. He is not mad at you. His heart overflows with love and compassion for you. His heart, he he has given all of himself to prove that to you and to show you how much he loves you. The thing that sends him into anger, the thing that he acts out in anger against is when he sees oppression and when he sees people breaking you down and taking advantage of you and hurting you. Those are the things that make God mad. Okay? Which leads us to this last piece of it. When this happens, they say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to have the right to do this? And Jesus answers back. You know what? It's not just your tables. It's the whole temple. I'll show you my authority. Tear the temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, you are crazy. You have lost it. It took us 46 years to build this thing. And you think you're going to turn around a reconstruction project in three Days, you're insane. But it gives us this hint, this brilliant move on the part of Jesus, that what he was doing was foreshadowing his resurrection. And what he was telling them was, I am the temple. And in the Old Testament, the temple represented the presence of God among his people. And so people would come from everywhere to worship at the temple, come from everywhere because that was where the presence of God was situated and located. But now Jesus says the kingdom and the presence of God is no longer brick and mortar. The presence of God now is flesh and blood. I am the presence of God among you. And John himself, when he describes Jesus coming as flesh and blood, and it says that he made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling is a play off of the Old Testament idea of tent and tabernacle. Where in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, God's presence dwelled in a tent while the people lived in the desert. And God made his presence live there with them. And as that progresses, then they build the temple and God's presence is there. And now the progression of the presence continues. And Jesus says, it's no longer brick and mortar, it's flesh and blood. I am among you. I am the presence of God here with you. 
the beautiful thing about the New Testament is that the presence doesn't stop there either. Because when the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts chapter 2, now the presence of God is not only located in where Jesus is, but it's now living inside of each of us. And the Holy Spirit fills up every one of us. And now everywhere we go, the kingdom is rolling out under our feet. The presence of God now lives within us. And so the other question that just very quickly as we wrap up here, and we're going to get into this a little bit more in a couple of weeks, but the question about the existence of God and proof for the existence of God, and is there a good and loving God? And if there, if there was, then why are all these bad things happening in the world? People look everywhere for proof for the existence of God. And the thing is, he lives inside of us. He lives inside of us. So people should, should not have to look any further than you and me. They should not have to look any further than us, that we are the living proof that God is here, that God is real. And he has changed us so much from the inside out that there should be no debate over the existence of God because he lives within us. He lives within us. And people wrestle with this question. It's one that strikes at my heart too. As we look at pain and suffering and tragedy in the world and those stack up as the evidences against the existence of God. But the counter argument for that, the counter argument against pain and tragedy and suffering should be you and you and me. As people look at our lives, they should new questions should be sparked. That instead of, if there is a good and loving God, then why do these bad things happen? Questions should be sparked in their hearts. If there's not a good and loving God, then where in the world are these weirdos coming from? What is up with these people? How do you explain people who live and love like this? Where does that come from? Absolutely, the world is a broken place because of the fall. The moment that sin entered the world, it wasn't just humanity that was damaged by it. All of creation. And everyone is broken and you can follow the fractures all the way back to that moment in the garden. Where all of creation. So now there are earthquakes, there are tornadoes, there's disease and there is death. Because sin entered the picture way back there and broke the world. The world crashed in that moment. But Jesus came to heal it and to set it right. And absolutely everywhere we look, we see the ripple effects of the fall. And earthquakes and tsunamis and devastation and tragedy. And addiction and pain and disease. Everywhere we look, we see the ripple effects of the fall. But also everywhere we go. We are the ripple effects of redemption. That Jesus has come to set the world right and his presence lives within us. And he is screaming to the world through our lives. I am here. I am real. And I love you. I love you. We are the sparks of redemption in this world. And we must fight the shadows of the fall wherever we find them. Our life should spark new questions. Where in the world are these weirdos coming from if there's not a good 
and loving God? What would drive a life like that? Last thing, I have a friend named Amanda. And Amanda's sister lives out in New Mexico. And Amanda's sister suddenly has developed this heart, well, over the course of time has developed this heart for exotic dancers in her community. People that are forgotten. People who don't think they're beautiful. And she's got this heart to reach out to them and say, you are beautiful. You are more than what you think you are worth. You are so priceless. And so she's going to put together these small little gift bags and just begin to deliver them over time and begin to build relationships with these ladies. And through these small gifts, remind them you are crowns of beauty. And God is crazy about you. Where does an idea like that come from? From the spark of a compassionate, loving God who lives inside of us. And the beautiful thing is Amanda has invited us to be a part of this. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to send all of us home with with gift bags. And we're going to fill them with things to send to these ladies in New Mexico. And people that they've never even met, strangers motivated by a weird kind of love, are going to be sending these Signs of beauty to them, reminding them who they are. I have another friend named Abby who was in the Sudan this summer. And her heart broke by that place. Because there are kids there who have to live with the reality of, of, of worms. Okay? And the medication for this is something like $12. Not just for one kid, for an entire village. To cure kids of this is something like $12. But because of all the, of the logistics, to help one village is going to cost $500. But Abby's heart is breaking over them, and she decided, I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to start something called Worms for Worms. All right? And, and she's going to sell gummy worms to people for like $5 a bag or something like that and, and use that money to help these kids with worm uh, medication in Sudan. And we're going to get to be a part of that as well. What is up with these weird ideas? Where are they coming from? They're sparked out of redemption. We are the ripple effects of redemption. Everywhere we look, there's pain and tragedy and signs of the fall. But we have to live our lives in such a way to be the counter-argument to make people scratch their heads and wonder where are these people coming from? What motivates them? It's because we've experienced redemption ourselves. And by nature, it wants to roll out of us. That's what this is about. Father, thank you that you allow us to wrestle with questions. And the more we dig, then the more questions get sparked. And we're okay with that. And we're glad you're okay with that too. And I pray that you would give us the courage to wrestle and give us the wisdom to recognize when we've discovered answers. Give us a hunger. Give us a thirst. But not just in a sense so that we can build simply knowledge, but a hunger and thirst to know you. To know you. This is an intellectual thing, absolutely. But it also gets all tangled up with our hearts and our souls. Help us to know you. 
and drive us to search, drive us to look. Continue to spark that curiosity in us so that we will search and we will find. See so your name we pray. Amen.